Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. Joining you today, as always, Mr. Mark Daly and Mr. Mark Hamilton. You know, it's crazy. We're just a couple of days away from the third Grand Prix of the season. We're heading to Portugal, which hosted a fantastic Grand Prix last year. But the thing that I am most excited about is the fact that Formula One has added a much needed feature to the F1 TV Pro app. And I promised you I would bring this up, <laughs> but probably a little bit sooner than you expected. Way like sooner. Like a lot of people, I'm a, I'm a cord cutter. I, I don't have a subscription TV package. I don't have satellite TV. So I depend on streaming services, legal streaming services, to get my Formula One content, to get my NBA content, etc. But one of the things that's really been terrible about the F1 TV Pro app so far is it doesn't have a casting or an airplay function. So if you want to watch it, you're pretty much locked into watching it on your computer, your phone, or your tablet. And you can you can screen mirror it to a TV, but it's slow, it's choppy, it's ugly. It's not the but best. But I woke up this morning... And Formula One tweeted out that the AirPlay and Chromecasting functioni- functionality has been enabled. So I am super, super pumped tomorrow to be able to uh, AirPlay some of uh, Free Practice 1 and Free Practice 2 to my 65-inch Sony OLED TV hanging in my living room. So that's, that's me. Awesome. I'm excited. What about you? How are you? Yeah, I, I'm great. You know, I, that's really cool because um, I was watching some of the historic races in the archive over the past uh, several weeks. And I love the fact that, I mean, a couple of years ago, we'd be like, oh, my god screen mirroring this is the coolest thing ever we never had this back like years ago but like nowadays it's like come on who's really screen mirroring so this is an exciting development and i'm really like looking forward to the fact well i mean i'm i'm glad that we have that but i'm just looking forward to the 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 day when there's actually like a native app for like apple tv and all these other that will be like an absolute uh, game changer but this is a great intermediate step don't get me wrong i'm really pumped about it because yeah screen mirroring it, it works but it's it's not ideal and to be fair to Formula One, they announced in the offseason that they've kind of got a two, two-stage two development process this year, that early in the season, we were going to see the Chromecast and the AirPlay functionality enabled, mm-hmm. but they are promising a native Apple TV app by the end of the season, which to your point, That's awesome. is a bit of a killer app, right? Like it's a slick interface. You'll have access to all the functionality and the features yep. of the F1 TV Pro app. Like That's where you start to unlock an audience that maybe isn't super, super excited about sitting down and watching it on their phone, which is what users have really been locked into doing. So super, super pumped about that. Yeah, you know, it is a game changer because I, I'm a big cycling fan. I love watching all the spring classics, all the grand tours and stuff like that. And you can't watch the Giro, the Vuelta or the tour on on terrestrial cable anymore, I guess if you want to call it that. It's not on TSN. It's not on the Outdoor Life Network or whatever it used to be called or Sportsnet. So, you know, you have to be able to stream it. And um, now that I've uh, found like, um, uh, like a, a service that I can actually do that and they have a native Apple TV app it is just as good as being watching it on like uh, on you know on TSN or wherever it was before so I was excited about that but if we can get the same on uh, F1 TV and all the bells and whistles that come along with that that's just going to be in my in my opinion that's going to be a game changer because Formula One fans by and large are all tech geeks and nerds we love all this technology and stuff like that and I think it'll be I think it'll be awesome yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Uh, disappointingly, a couple of days ago, I actually got my renewal notice from the F1 TV Pro. I was oh, expecting you? it two or three months ago. I'm like, maybe they just forgot. But, uh, <laughs> they as never it turned forget. out, they'd been offering some of their users uh, like 30-day um, extensions as a result of some of the service disruptions last year. But I think that's enough of uh, the F1 TV Pro app uh, for one day. 
Yeah, it is. But, you know, I'm, I'm really excited uh, because, uh, as you mentioned nicely in the opener there, we're just a couple of days away from round three of the season at uh, Portimao in Portugal. And we were talking about this before we actually hit record here a few minutes ago that it's only been six months since we were there for, and, and as you also so, you know, uh, pointed out so accurately when we were talking before we started the show, this is the second Portuguese Grand Prix of Portimao in, uh, in, in the pandemic, like COVID Grand Prix. So, I mean, it is so weird because it does not feel like it was six months ago. It actually feels like it was longer ago, but October 2020 is not really all that far in the rearview mirror. But having said that, I'm really excited about uh, going back there. Yeah. I was thinking about it. We'll we'll talk a little bit more about the race uh, this weekend uh, a little bit later in the show. But just I'm going to plant this seed now. I think it's a great track and it certainly has a lot of features, although I don't know if it's really 100 percent suited uh, to like the modern F1 cars. But I still think it's a great track and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, so am I. I think one of the things that I do like about this track, and if if I had one, if I had one takeaway from the track last year, and I'm probably going to butcher this word, another <laughs> word I use often, but undulating. It's yeah. a track that has a tremendous amount of undulation. Uh, now I'm very confident using that word, but I think that was one of the things that I really liked because we have so many tracks that are principally flat. You look at Sochi and Abu yeah. Dhabi and a lot of these street courses. This this track offers some variety, and and there's nothing that I like more than seeing a car attacking another car on an apex, either going up a slope or down a slope. And it's one of the things that makes Austria so so exactly. exciting to me. Yeah. But that I think was one of my biggest takeaways. And, and you're right. Like, like when you look at the track, you, you get the sense that this was something that was really fundamentally designed from the ground up for a different type of racing. And, you know, obviously MotoGP is deeply rooted in this track and it has yeah. a permanent presence there. But that said, as a temporary kind of step and filler for Formula One, it's been perfect. The only thing I hope is that at some point Portuguese fans can pour into this track on mass post COVID and enjoy a traditional Grand Prix weekend. I think they, they obviously deserve it, but but uh, obviously looking forward to this race weekend. Well, you know, it's funny you should uh, mention a couple of these things because uh, there have been some uh, changes uh, to the calendar since we talked uh, last on the show last week, uh, this being the, the 29th of April, 2021. And uh, well, as as we've kind of hinted at and, and pondered ourselves that the schedule probably will change at some point, And that was finally proven right. Uh, we had uh, news yesterday that um, Canada is officially cancelled. I mean, we'd been talking about it uh, on the show for the last couple of weeks, kind of hopeful that maybe something might be able to take place in Montreal behind closed doors. But as we've said, like the COVID situation in the country isn't that great, obviously. But uh, we, we get Turkey back. We're going back to Istanbul. We've talked about it uh, before that geographically it's convenient going from Baku to uh, Turkey and then uh, to France afterwards. So, I mean, geographically, you're regionally convenient uh, just in the terms of transport and getting the teams and cars and personnel from one track to another and to another rather than this one-off uh, race going from Azerbaijan to Canada, then back to France. So I think, uh, you know, if we do end up... Uh, towards the upper limit of 23 races this season i don't think at the end of the year uh, like a lot of the people in the paddock and the the the, uh, the media circus that might be traveling this year will be all that broken up that we didn't get to do montreal i mean don't get me wrong i'm disappointed that it's not happening i mean it is our home grand prix after all but i think all things uh, considered excuse me i think all things i considered that turkey is a good replacement 
Yeah, I completely agree. And, and look, Formula One was very, very ambitious with their calendar. They needed to be to mm-hmm. satisfy their corporate sponsor. Uh, they, they needed to be very ambitious to satisfy their TV partners. But ultimately, it wasn't going to make sense. And, and you know, when I signed a contract to come on this show, I was very clear that I'm not allowed <laughs> to talk about U.S. politics. But you never said I couldn't talk about Canadian politics. And unfortunately, without getting into too many details, uh, the Canadian COVID response, especially when you look at some comps like Australia or New Zealand or or China or the United States or the United Kingdom, it hasn't been great. And we all hope and we we all want to support the government and we, we hope that things turn around in the next couple of months. But Montreal was in no place to host this race. And it was really compounded by the current quarantine requirements that stated that anyone entering the country effectively had to quarantine for 14 days. And ultimately, there is a Grand Prix six days before they would take to the track for free practice on the Friday. So realistically, mm-hmm. this was never going to happen. And by all accounts, the, the race organizers, the, the provincial, the municipal and the federal government did look hard and, and worked hard to try to find a solution to this. But ultimately, t- to your point, if they weren't going to race in front of fans, I, I'm not necessarily sure what the point of bringing the entire F1 circus across the globe just to move it back across the globe again for an upcoming race in the south of France. To me, it didn't make sense. And we talked about this last week. Turkey is a two, three hour flight from Baku. It logically makes perfect sense. And this season's already going to be a grind on the teams and the drivers and the engineers. Why not give them a, a bit of a break and save them that trip across the Atlantic Ocean? To me, it feels like it's the right thing. And ultimately, I hope we can see some fans, some spectators in Turkey. I think last year they were hoping for a sellout, which obviously had to be ratcheted back dramatically due to the COVID situation in that country at the time. We ultimately got a really entertaining race, but uh, I I think it's the right thing. Yeah, sorry to jump in there. I was just going to say, did they actually get anybody in the stands in Turkey last year? I think it was closed behind closed doors, wasn't it? Yeah, I'll double check in the background right now, but I remember originally they were very, very optimistic about potentially bringing in 100,000 people on race day. Uh, I think there was a lot of excitement about that because I think in some ways it kind of spelled that, hey, we're moving beyond this COVID situation. But I think in the end, it was a very limited crowd. or it was nothing. But let me double check in the background. Yeah, it was it was minimal at most. But, you know, just uh, not not to dwell too much on the situation here in Canada. But I just I find this, uh, you know, worth uh, repeating because I think it was uh, quite uh, well, it was ironic at best. Let's put it this way. I mean, for for months and months and months, Canadians and a lot of people I know were very concerned about people coming from the U.S. into Canada and considering how bad the situation was there for the longest time. And then I think it was really ironic a couple of weeks ago that there was a travel advisory for Americans coming into Canada because of the, uh, you know, the COVID situation here. And and that's all I'm going to say now. It's just uh, anyways, but uh, just building on that. So in the the wake of Canada being uh, canceled and being replaced by Turkey. So Formula One has clarified that Mexico and the U.S. Grand Prix are going to go on as scheduled later on in the year. So they wanted some clarification for that. So that's going to be on October 24th and October 31st. You know, that's the usual time of year that we see them, which I think is great. But uh, even more exciting about that is that they're actually selling tickets for the U.S. Grand Prix at uh, the Circuit of Americas, which I think is um, absolutely uh, exciting. I I don't know how many people that they're going to allow in there ultimately, but I think it's just an exciting development seeing how things are going in the U.S. regarding the the, the pandemic and that this is actually a thing again. If you want to go to the U.S. Grand Prix, obviously I don't know what it's like for people coming in from outside the country, but you know, if you're you're in the uh, the the Austin area, or you can travel there. I mean, why would you get all over this? <laughs> I mean, it's exciting. It's a sign of things going back to normal. 
Totally. And a couple of thoughts too, right? Like that race is still six months away. Think about how far we've come as this. Think about how far the United States has come in the last six months in terms of their COVID response and yeah. vaccination rates and reopening and things like that. The The other consideration too, right, is Texas is fully open. The yeah. Texas Rangers hosted 45,000 people for their opening day uh major league baseball season open against the toronto blue jays like there's no reason to think at this point that there'll potentially be any restrictions and the other benefit of this track too is that while you've obviously got some dense grandstands there's tons and tons and tons of general entry admission capacity to kind of scatter around the track it's really really cool that way but you and i were talking about this and not to be a spoiler for anybody but this is a race i think that you and i like if everything turns out well and things are kind of moving along um effectively from a covid response perspective in Canada. Ultimately, I think this is a race you and I would love to attend from a, a yep. media perspective. Uh, so keep your keep your ears open potentially to that. But this is a track I've not been to, but I, I love in, in so many different ways. I, I love the fact that it emulates so much of what makes the European tracks great. And in so many ways, it's a combination of a country fair and a music festival and a motorsport event. People pour in the gates. You can bring your own food. You can bring your own drinks. You can bring whatever you want. And you basically get to camp out at the track and just soak up Formula One for the day. And that's so much like what you get at some of these traditional, uh, some of these traditional European tracks like Monza and Spa and, and Silverstone. Like to me, that that's very, very, very cool. I really want to climb up. Well, not really. I want to climb up it, uh, considering how many stairs there are. But I'd love to get to the top of that uh, big tower they have in the infield. I'm not sure how tall it is, but you must get an amazing view when you get up to that uh, viewing platform at the top. I mean, uh, it is obviously the highest point in that entire facility, and I think it would be absolutely uh, outstanding. Anyways, Mark, we're we're just a little bit ahead of schedule here, but we're going to go into our next topic here. I want to talk about uh, Max Verstappen and uh, and Lewis Hamilton. So let's just break a little bit early. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about the fun stuff. We've got the uh, you know the schedule changes uh, behind us, and we'll do that in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights and more. Whether you're into speed, power or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. Uh, welcome back to the podcast. Is always always up to speed with Formula One. Mark and Mark breaking down all the latest Formula One uh, news. And uh, Mark, this one kind of caught my eye. Uh, Ralph Schumacher, form, former Formula One driver and brother of Michael, uncle of Mick, predicts that Lewis Hamilton could. Well, he's he's predicting he's going to come under more pressure from uh, Max Verstappen, which I think is. Uh, 
has been hinted at in the first couple of races for this, uh, of the season, and I'm hoping that it's going to continue as I think most people are. But Ralph is taking it a step further, and he actually thinks that the more pressure that Max puts on Lewis might might possibly force Lewis into more mistakes. Now, ultimately, whether that uh, happens or not remains to be seen. But I think it's an interesting conversation because it's not one that we've had very much in uh, well a long time. Yeah, I completely agree. I, and I saw this headline as well. I, I, I get the sense that the article in a, in a couple of ways, and really it's framed around that Ralph Schumacher comment, is is a bit clickbaity. Yes. But I, I think in a sense there's there's a little bit there, right? And if you look back at the past six, seven years, I, I guess the question is when under pressure during this hybrid error, how how frequently has Hamilton made mistakes? And and I know that Ralph references the crash, uh, the most pre- previous recent or pre- most previous race weekend. But I think that's a little bit unfair because it's a little bit wet, and unfortunately, that's just what happens in, mm-hmm. in wet races. But if you look at fourteen, I, I think his his reliability and and his resume that season was pretty much spotless. Fifteen was fantastic. Sixteen was error free, and really the only black mark on that season was obviously the collision with Nico. Rosberg, who he was competing with, and ultimately the engine failure in Malaysia, which yeah. certainly wasn't his fault. And then obviously he was under intense pressure from the Ferraris in 17 and 18, and to a certain extent in the first half of 19. And, you know, I just look back and, and I, if I look at his resume, I don't see him historically making the mistakes that would suggest it would occur again this year if he was under intense pressure from from Max Verstappen. No, in, in all fairness, in 2014, he really was dominating that championship and the double points finish kind of skewed the end result. 2015, he ran away with the title. 17, he ran away with the title. But 18 was a little bit closer. 16 was obviously very close. But even 16, when he was battling so closely with Nico, he wasn't making mistakes. So I I don't don't know if there's anything to suggest we would see that. But I'm curious to Curious, curious to know what you would think. I agree uh, by and large with what you're saying. I mean, the 16 is a bit of the outlier because he had a slower start that season. And Nico, he won the first couple of races. Four. He yeah. won the first four. He had that massive, what was it, like 43 or 45 point lead by the time we got to like the fourth race of the season or something like that. And then Lewis was catching up. And by the middle of the season, they were pretty level on points. And then it could have gone either way. And then really at that point, uh, when they got to Malaysia and the engine blew, like how often does a Mercedes engine let go like like it did for Lewis in in Malaysia? And then that really put him on his, his back foot. Because from there on out, Nico just basically... He went the, um, how do you want to say it? He strategically raced out the rest of the season. He didn't push, uh, you know, as hard as he needed to. He didn't go out to try and win every race. And Lewis went, he, he, I think he ran or won. I've got the stats somewhere, but he won as many as he needed to. And then we came down to that uh, infamous finale in, uh, uh, Yas Marina. But the thing was that season, the, the, the problems that he had by and large weren't his own doing, right? I mean, uh, it was, he had a slow start. He had some poor results, and then he really got rolling. And then, really, the crucial moment was Nico wins in Malaysia. He collects zero points, and then that gap in the championship opens up. And then he basically has to win out. And then he has to hope that uh, Nico's going to have some bad finishes or retirements or something like that. But I mean, the thing is, we we really haven't had that um, that conversation. I mean, even when he was teammates with the with Rosberg, I mean, if there was anything about pressure, it was the other way around. Can like Rosberg uh, stand up to the pressure that Nico's or sorry that uh, Lewis is putting on him rather than the, than the other way right. around? I, the other thought too, and I, I did, this just occurred to me as we were talking. We we made a comment last week or I think the week before about 
the position that Vettel's been putting himself in this year in mm-hmm. terms of if you qualify poorly and you're racing against the middle of the pack, you're literally in a position where even the slightest mistake could result in a collision. It yeah. could result in contact. It could result in you spinning off the track, damage, all these kind of things that would impact your race. I, I think maybe the one other consideration is Lewis has been successful the last six or seven years because he's led more laps than anyone else in Formula One. Mm-hmm. It's it's not it's not I'm not saying it's easy to race when you're leading the field, but it's a lot easier to lead a race than it is to chase the leader. And if Max creates a situation or environment where he's consistently qualifying ahead of Hamilton, and now Hamilton is having to fight him for position, that's when mistakes can happen. So again, I don't want to be this kind of Hamilton um, goat, um, I I don't know, announcer kind of guy that gets criticized for over-embellishing his contributions to the sport. Like, he's been great. Um, his circumstances have been great. He's put himself in a great situation, but he also hasn't had to fight for the lead very often. I think where there could be some validity to this comment is that if Max consistently consistently qualifies ahead of Hamilton, if Hamilton has to fight him for track position, that's where there's more likely to be errors committed than if Hamilton is leading a race. It's very difficult to make a mistake when you're simply leading a race. And, and maybe that's the one kind of angle that you can take here is that if Hamilton does have to chase him for position he's more likely potentially to create mistakes because that's not a situation he's really been in the last six or seven years yeah well it adds a different uh, variable to his uh, his race weekend right i mean if uh, you're out uh, leading then i guess the one thing that you have to worry about is okay the car behind me is close but not quite close enough so maybe they can get me on the undercut or the overcut when it comes to pit strategy right. or maybe uh, when, when i get caught in traffic you know th- those sorts of things right but, I mean, we've seen over the first couple of races that obviously the, the, the Red Bull is much closer to the Mercedes and, uh, and Max is pushing them more one way or the other. And uh, what, uh, what what Ralph is saying is that uh, that Lewis now has to push more uh, to the limit to keep up with Max or stay ahead of Max. And that's where he's saying that's where mistakes uh, can happen. And I totally agree with that because now he's he's focusing on one other thing. Rather than managing his own race, he's, he's, he's focusing on his own race and also catching Max and or staying in front of Max or whatever the case may be, right? And that I totally agree with. It, it obviously puts renewed emphasis on qualifying yep. and it puts an immense amount of emphasis on the race because I think what we've seen from Max is even if he doesn't qualify on the front row with a great start, he can take the lead before the first corner. Mm-hmm. So qualifying may not necessarily be enough for Hamilton, especially with the power that that Honda powered Red Bull is producing this year. He needs to qualify well and he absolutely has to get a great start to be successful in these races. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, I was going to start uh, looking up another stat here, but I'm going to, I'll wait that for, for later on in the, the, the show to talk about that one, because I want to stick with the, this one, because uh, th- this, uh, this is kind of related, but uh, Jos Verstappen, Max's dad, himself a, a former Formula One driver, obviously not quite uh, as is, uh, successful as son is turning out to, to be, but he's saying that the, uh, the shoulder bump that they had that was kind of accidentally on purpose on accident uh, after qualifying at Imola the other week was kind of a sign that Max won't be uh, pushed aside like it might have been one of those kind of like uh, accidental kind of like nudges that uh, that that you might have just uh, kind of uh, you know maybe one nudging the other that uh, hey you know I've got my eyes on you or I'm gonna I, I'm not I'm not gonna back down but who knows I mean that's one of these things that maybe you can read a little bit uh, too much into but just in general I, I don't think that uh, that that Max is 
intimidated as much mentally by by Lewis as maybe some other drivers are. Because, I mean, I think that was really interesting just to go back to Nico Rosberg. He won his championship in 16 and he retired, what, a week later? Not even, right? And that was one of the things that he cited was he, he didn't so much say in so many words that, uh, that that it was, you know, Lewis got in his head, but it was just the commitment and, and the mental pressure and everything like that of Formula One to stay there and, and, and be on the edge all the time. I mean, I, I think for Lewis, it's just part of uh, who he is and that's what he brings to the track. And I think Max Verstappen is the same way. I think they're both alpha dogs in that sense. And I, I don't think either one is going to really be pushed out of the, uh, you know, pushed out of the way by the other one, either physically or mentally. I think a little bit of context is warranted here as well. Yas is obviously Max's father, as you described a couple of minutes ago. He had a run in Formula One himself, certainly not not to the uh, the level of success that his son has enjoyed. He's actively been involved in Max's entire career. Um, but this is a guy who's I'm I'm trying to think of the right way to put this. He's not a sinister character. He's not necessarily a nefarious character, but he has a bit of a history. Um, there's been some allegations of abuse. He's obviously a little bit rough around the edges. Mm-hmm. And, and the sense is that it's generally understood he raised Max in a pretty cutthroat environment. And, and I think that obviously translates into Max's personality. And I completely agree with you that I don't think Max is even remotely intimidated by Lewis, nor do I think he's bothered by any of Lewis's previous or current successes. And nor do I think he shows any respect to Lewis on the track in terms of Lewis's past past trend or past history. And and I I honestly think that combination of that that Honda-powered Red Bull and Max Verstappen is the weapon that could potentially dethrone Lewis Hamilton. And, and if I was building a team today, we often talk about like, hey, if you were building a team from the ground up, who would you draft to be on your team in terms mm-hmm. of a young, capable driver? Like as much as I love Lewis, if, if I was going to build a team around a driver today, it's going to be Max because one, he's absolutely dialed in psychologically because he's got that I don't give an F attitude. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm not apologizing for anything. I'm out here to be the alpha racer and I am the best racer on the track. And that's the mentality you want. And you've also paired him with obviously a great car. But yeah, I, I thought it was an interesting comment. I did look at the video. I watched it 150,000 times to see if there was any <laughs> intent. Unfortunately, there wasn't an overhead helicopter shot, which was the angle that I needed to better dissect, <laughs> dissect it. I don't think there was much to it, but I just, I think it speaks to the mentality of Joss or Joss and, and Max that this could be an issue. But I completely agree with you in the sense that Max doesn't give an F about Lewis or what Lewis has done in the past. Not whatsoever. Yeah, I, I think he obviously respects what he's done and what his record is but uh i think he's like like you say he's there to race for himself and i don't think that he's going to be pushed around by 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 anyone and uh, not even lewis hamilton i think that's why it makes it a fascinating rivalry between the two drivers because i think mentally they're they're both like that i mean lewis obviously comes across he he's a much more you know, he's he's a much more relaxed kind of personal guy that you could kind of say, oh, yeah, I could see myself hanging out uh, with Lewis. You know, he seems pretty chill. He seems pretty friendly where Max, you know, he kind of get that feeling that, you know, there's a, a bit of sandpaper, right? He's a, a little bit of a grittier personality, right? That's, you know, I think at that's least a publicly, point. And right? You look at Hamilton, right? In, in terms of his personality, uh, psychologically he's dialed in for the race but he's still got a marketable personality and Mm -hmm. i think as much as brands would love to get behind max i think your point about 
him being a little bit sandpapery from a personality perspective, I think that's totally true. And I think that negates his ability to become a marketable star. And ultimately, I think if he wins a championship, people are going to put money behind him and they're going to put him on boxes and posters and, and all kinds of other places. But I think he would be much more marketable if he had a different type of personality. But that said, if he had a different type of personality, he might not be the racer that he is today. Yeah, you know, that's uh, that, that's very, very true. But sticking with Lewis, and this is one that uh, something you brought to my attention literally before we sat down in the studio here tonight. But apparently Lewis is throwing some pretty solid hints out at what he's planning to do next year. And it sounds like he's going to come back for 2022. And, you know, it was really interesting because there was a lot of speculation in the offseason. I mean, Lord knows we talked about it uh, quite a few times <laughs> in the in the offseason. Just the fact that he has this one-year deal in place, which officially is kind of like a, a placeholder, if you want to call it that, because they just weren't able to le- work out the long-term deal that they wanted to. Then you had his dad, Anthony. And he's saying, well, Lewis, maybe he knows when he's going to walk away from Formula One. And, you know, his dad is his former manager. That could have been one of those really well-placed comments in the media just to kind of sow the seeds of something one way or another to generate uh, discussion. But it was the, the way that his dad kind of framed it was that he wouldn't be surprised if Lewis walked away at the end of the season. But the thing is, uh, Lewis, uh, this week, uh, he's been uh, doing uh, this uh, Pirelli tire test for, for next year's tires. And uh, he said, uh, I plan to be here next year and I want to help uh, Pirelli move forward in having a better product. So, you know, the speculation and the and, and the, the analysis is there is if, uh, if he wasn't planning on being in Formula One next year, why would he care what the tires are going to be like for, for next year? He's certainly not going to do a test just for the hell of it and out of the goodness of his heart. I mean, unless he's curious to see what, what the rubber is going to be like for 2022, right? Uh, and Hamilton is notorious for being very vocal about hating in-season testing. Yeah. So the fact that he was participating at, at all seemed a, a little bit curious. And obviously what he was testing, just to give everyone a little bit of uh, context, is Formula One shifting from a 13-inch wheel to an 18-inch wheel next season, which will be something that better resembles what we see on road car. As a result, obviously the cars are going to have very significant suspension changes and the compound of the tires are going to be quite different. But he's been participating in this testing to help get Pirelli data and to give feedback on what those tires are going to be look like but the debate all season and really kind of last season as well was you know how long is he willing to continue competing at formula one last season he won mm-hmm. his seventh driver's title which ties in with michael schumacher as the uh, winningest driver of all time and the thought was or at least the assumption was or maybe the speculation was that if he won the driver's title this year he could walk away with the most titles of all time and this is probably a record that will stand for some time but the fact that he's now showing signs or openly speaking to the fact that he'll be back next year is pretty interesting, but I think it's just going to create that fervor that we experienced in the back half of last season with respect to that contract, because he Mm -hmm. may be coming back next year, but there's no guarantee it's necessarily going to be with Mercedes for all the reasons that we've talked about before. And I think you and I really got hung up in the off season about the fact that he only signed that one deal, one year deal with Mercedes, which is if he wanted to come back, if he wants to come back next year now, he probably had that in mind during the off season. So why not just sign that two year deal and get that financial security? Or why not sign that one year deal with the one year driver option? It's just, it's very, very peculiar. I, I think it's good that he's signaling that he intends to come back, but just, just for the benefit of our listeners, don't assume that means he's necessarily going to be back next year with the Mercedes team. I think If he wins a title this year, I think he'll be looking for an opportunity to cash in on perhaps one big 
final contract. And yeah. that might not necessarily be with Mercedes. Yeah, that's true, right? And uh, the, the big question is who would be willing and who would be able to open up the, 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 the bank account and write a huge check like that, right? I mean, th- there's a couple of names that immediately uh, come to mind. And uh, they, they they don't have silver on their cars, right? So, <laughs> but that's what we'll we'll get to it uh, in due course. And uh, I want to stick with uh, where we're going to go because that that's a rabbit hole we could go down and and discuss for for quite a while. And we we've uh, we, talked we about we need it to have a buzzer right? that when I start speculating about Lewis Hamilton contracts, I just press the bus buzzer and we move on to the next move topic. on to the next one. Anyways, well, that's a good point actually. Just to to, to break when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about Aston Martin and their ongoing saga with the with the arrow regs and stuff like that and eventually we're going to get into the race itself so don't go away we'll be back in uh, just a moment and uh, we're going to have a lot more good stuff or at least i hope it is anyways we'll be right back don't go away All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And Mark, uh, as I was hinting at just before the break, Aston Martin, they have uh, had a bit of a dramatic uh, start to the season. Let's put it that that way. It's been underwhelming, I think, to, to put it uh, kindly. Uh, they've had a lot of issues uh, with their car, and uh, they've been really complaining about the fact that how the new aero regs have really affected teams that have the low rake setup like themselves and uh, Mercedes. They've talked about, uh, you know, wanting to challenge this with with uh, with. Formula One with the FIA, but a lot of their rivals uh, think that they have no grounds to to basically dispute it. And the way that I see it is, last year they exploited the rules to their advantage with the whole pink Mercedes thing. And despite the fact that they got busted on the whole uh, brake duct thing, that uh, and the, all the whole listed non listed parts saga and the fine and the points deduction, everything that goes along with that, they basically found a loophole when it came to the design of the car and exploited it to, to their their advantage. And here we are a year later and I think the situation's completely flip-flopped and I think that they've just been caught out. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one and you're absolutely right. This year has not gone has not gone according to plan for this team in, in so many different ways. Vettel struggled right from the gate. He didn't get uh, a significant amount of time on track during winter testing. He struggled in qualifying. He collided with Ocon. Strolls put in a couple of points performances, but they were, in the, I think, finishing 8th, ninth. I think the team secured three championship points. But you're ultimately right here, which is ultimately the sports going through this transformative stage. And this team ultimately got caught up in a wave of change that ultimately didn't favor the design of the car that they had last season. But I think where the criticism is really coming from is, hey, that car that you were rocking last year that this car is largely based on with that high rake design was really, really cribbed from what Mercedes was doing. So we have zero sympathy for you that, you know what, you were able to be successful last year on a design that was really emulating the the foregone conclusion or foregone champion of Mercedes. Like there's a, there's a lack of sympathy there. Um, but ultimately this team is one that has financial resources and they need to be able to dig themselves out of this hole. And they needed to have done a better job of predicting what the outcome of those regulatory changes were going to be in the off season, mm-hmm. right? Like ultimately it, it wasn't a surprise or it shouldn't have been a surprise to the teams and, and the ownership that, that this was coming. But again, they, they invested heavily in the design that they cribbed from Mercedes, and it's obviously put them on the back foot, so to speak, this season. Obviously, from a resource perspective, again, the question is, how much how much of your 
financial capital do you want to pour into this car relative to FY22? But at the same time, this is a team that invested heavily in Vettel for this season, expecting some strong results. And they've also made some very, very significant commitments to their corporate sponsors in terms of how successful they were going to be on the track this year. So I think from their perspective, they're lashing out a little bit. I don't think that any of their potential lawsuits or complaints have any merit. Again, Mm -hmm. this is a team that I wanted to see successful this season, but they just got caught up on the wrong end of some transformative regulatory changes and, and so be it. But Again, I don't think any of their complaints have grounds or merit. I'm curious, though, from your perspective, because I think you, like me, were emotionally invested in seeing this team do well. Do do you feel any sympathy for this team based on where they are right now? Mm, I wouldn't call it sympathy. I I would say more disappointment, because I think when it comes to a, a situation like this, that you have to be on the ball. I mean, if you were that much ahead of the game this time last year or when you were developing the RP20... They obviously had everything sorted out. I mean, they they had to go to pretty extreme measures to bust them on something, and it ultimately wasn't the design of the car itself. It was like I said, it was the the, the, the brake ducts that were basically a carbon copy of the the W10, the uh, the Mercedes car from the year before. And it is interesting too because it's it's very much the the same sort of lack of sympathy that's coming from the other teams. So they're they're basically saying like uh, the uh, Aston Martin that is and their team principal Otmar uh, Safnauer is saying that this difference in the performance uh, differential between the high rake and the low rake cars is could be up to a second a lap, which is a lot of time in Formula One. So they want, Aston Martin that is, they want the FIA to respond with uh, some tweaks to the regs and stuff like that, which would allow them to basically level the playing field, as Safnauer puts it. But when you look at some of the comments, and you just need to go online and look at any number of these articles, there's lots of comments out there from some of the team principals like Zach Brown, uh, or the CEO, but uh, his team principal, uh, McLaren, uh, Andreas Seidel, Mattia Bonato from Ferrari, they're basically saying... This wasn't a surprise. Like all these tweaks, exactly. that it was out there. The process that uh, that these regs were brought in were completely transparent. So you guys got it wrong. So why should they have to change it now? You just you just screwed it up and you didn't get it right. And furthermore, to to inject a change into the regulations mid season to benefit ultimately what is one team because ultimately Mercedes is going to figure this out and they clearly have because they're leading the constructors championship. But to inject changes into the regulation mid season is mm-hmm. to undermine the integrity of the sport. And if I'm any of the other nine teams and I see a a regulatory change based on something that this team should have been aware of and should have adapted in anticipation of would be infuriating. I, I I can't imagine a situation where that would be appropriate by by any measure. I think this is something that they're literally going to have to dig themselves out of. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I can prove that these mid-season rule changes never work. And I can do that. Like I, I will totally get on a Zoom call or a FaceTime call with the FIA. I'll let them watch my kids play because my kids are horrible. (laughs) They'll go and play a game. It doesn't matter if it's a board game or some game that they make up when they're playing outside in the yard. But they're bad. They'll start off and then halfway through the game, one of them will change the rules and then they're all at each other's throats. And this is basically the Formula One equivalent of that if that was to happen, <laughs> and, you know, to, to put it in a very, very ridiculous uh, comparison. But yeah, I mean, it, it just does not make sense to change that halfway through the season. I, and, and like you you so properly put it, it, it just uh, it seems ridiculous to to even try and make that change halfway through the the, the season you know it just doesn't hold water for me either 
Yeah, it's 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 a little bit embarrassing for a team that is now that well funded and that well structured. But again, I think there's probably a degree of embarrassment within that team and that front office and that mm. executive that they performed so well last year and the expectations were so high coming into the season. And again, you make that kind of premier driver move by bringing in four times world champion Sebastian Vettel. And for you to start your season so poorly is not obviously a good look. And it's possible as well that that the high rake design might be a smaller a smaller factor in terms of what's contributing to their performance, but it could just be a good deflection mechanism. It could be a good way to deflect away from some of the other things that could be compromising their season so far. And and quite frankly, it might be a psychological method of guarding Sebastian Vettel from the media in terms of them pressing the team too hard on he being the contributor of his poor performance. So there could be a whole bunch of different things at play here, but ultimately I think we're totally aligned that making a midseason and rule change would be like kids on the playground changing the rule halfway through a game because they don't like the way the outcome is. <laughs> and as I said, that just do not, does not work. But just sort of sticking on this, and, and I found this is a very interesting story that uh, came out uh, this week that McLaren is calling for secret ballots when it comes to key votes on Formula One rule changes. And I find this uh, absolutely fascinating because when there is like an open voting system that there there could be obviously i guess a situation where customer teams might feel uh, pressure to toe the company line if you want to say you'll put it that way say teams obviously you have um, you know uh, ferrari and then maybe the ferrari customer teams like alfa romeo and uh, uh, you know, for example, in Haas, that are Ferrari customer teams. That just because you know Ferrari does or does not like one proposed uh, rule change, you know, all it uh, takes is well, you know, we're we're going to vote this way and basically say it, but not say it that they expect their customer teams uh, to toe the line. But I mean, I, I don't see why this isn't a thing because if there's an election tomorrow and we go down to our local polling station to vote in a federal election, for example, you go into a little voting booth where you have your your, your ballot, you make your mark, and then you go put it in the ballot box. I mean, because we do things the old-fashioned way here in Canada, but still, that is, that's a secret thing. It's not like you walk in there and you, you've got a camera on there, there's like a big screen and everybody can see that you make a, an X for the Liberals or the Conservatives or the NDP or whoever it is. It's a secret thing. And I think that in in the fairness of Formula One, the, the, the fact that the rules work for everyone, that that should be a thing because you don't want teams voting a certain way just because they feel pressurized because of their their relationships to other teams or suppliers, whatever the case may be. What, what do you think? I actually completely agree. And to give everyone a, a little bit of context, F1's current rule structures require that regulations have to go through the quote unquote F1 commission. It's a body made up of 30 votes. Uh, the teams are, I think, comprised of 10 votes. So every team gets one vote. Uh, the FIA has 10 votes and Formula One has 10 votes. And if you want to have in-season rule changes, you need a super majority of 28 votes. But you're right. From a, a team's perspective, the teams tend to vote in these blocks so for instance the ferrari block would typically be alfa romeo and haas and ferrari mm-hmm. but the truth is that alfa romeo and haas may not necessarily want to vote down that path but they're really forced into doing so because the voting is so open and transparent yeah. that said and while i agree that the ballot should be secret ultimately i think when you've only got 10 teams it still becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly oh yeah who for votes sure. in which direction <laughs> right like these teams 
are very open about whether they favor a rule change or whether they don't favor a rule change. And you know what? You could probably just ask the teams and you pretty quickly come up with some some general understanding of what direction they voted. But I do agree that it does seem very, very strange that if this is going to be a democratic process, the votes need to be secret, regardless of whether the media is ultimately going to figure it out by asking some basic basic questions but ultimately it needs to be a secret process because i i like the idea potentially of breaking up those voting blocks especially if haas isn't necessarily comfortable with the direction that ferrari's leading the sport or Alfa romeo's not necessarily comfortable with the way that ferrari's kind of leading the sport but but yeah i agree it should be it should be secret because yeah just for all the reasons that you said I don't have a problem with the transparency. I think it's important, but I do have the issue of like the the open voting. There there should be some privacy when it comes to that. That that I mean, obviously, if you have a situation for a proposed uh, rule change, and it, it's voted down, and Ferrari voted for it, and the other nine teams didn't, then I mean, it's it's obvious who didn't did exactly. it. In an extreme example, right? But if it goes, say, it's fifty fifty or sixty forty or seventy thirty, then there leads uh, you know there. there leaves a lot uh, to, to be questioned there and then it isn't so, so clear and then you know if, if you're uh, you know Gene Haas or um, uh, what's his name Gunther Steiner at, at, at Alfa Romeo or sorry at Haas or uh, Frederick Vassar at Alfa Romeo and then then all you have to say well we voted the way that we voted and just kind of leave it at that I mean you don't have to commit one way to, or, or another and I, I think that's the way that it, it should be and I think like in any democratic uh, process yeah I mean there should be transparency but not when it comes to balloting. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, take another uh, break here, uh, Mark. And when we come back, I want to talk about one of your favorite uh, stories. It's a Red Bull. You always complain I never have enough uh, Red Bull stories, but I pushed them back far enough into the show not to bring it up uh, right off at the top. And uh, we'll do that uh, because it's uh, it's interesting. You know, this, this whole Red Bull engine division is becoming a real thing. It's gathering ahead of steam. And that's where I want to go with this. And that's uh, what we'll do right after the break. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And Mark, I I have to be honest, I really wanted to throw a Valtteri Bottas story into the show outline this week. But every time I do, and, and I mention it before we sit down, there's always, uh, you know, these tweet or not, not, not tweets, but uh, messages full of expletives and eye rolls and stuff like that. So I thought... I'm going to be nice about it this week. I'm not going to pull up a Valtteri Bottas story just to you know preserve your sanity. But I had to do a, a Red Bull one because I know we talk about them a lot, and they are sort of a self-perpetuating news machine. I think they uh, they they like to promote themselves to get any stories about them. But this is interesting because this whole uh, Honda Engine IP takeover and the the whole fact that they're they're establishing their own engine division going into next year. They're going to be an outright manufacturer of cars and engines starting in 2022, I think is an exciting development, not just for them, but Formula One as a whole. As sad as I am to see Honda leaving the sport, but it is interesting because, uh, you know, they, and they're going, they're being aggressive about it. I mean, they're being flat out open saying that they are targeting the best talent out there as they get their, their, their Formula One engine division 
division up and uh, running. They've hired uh, one of Mercedes' uh, top guys uh, to to actually uh, be their new uh, technical uh, director, and that is uh, Ben Hodgkinson, uh, who's going to join the, uh, the 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 program here. So you know, cue the uh, the the fighting between Red Bull and Mercedes as to when they're going to let him go. But I, I think it is exciting to see that this is. Uh, I, I mean, obviously, when when they're going to invest this much time and money and effort into it, you have to go. You have to go big. You you can't go at this half-hearted. You have to be aggressive in your re- recruiting to get this thing up and running, or else you're just going to have a really poor engine program, and that's not obviously where they want to be. I've always said that one of my biggest concerns about the future of Formula One is that it eventually becomes... I'm, I'm trying not to turn IndyCar series into a verb, but I've always been worried that the sport would transform into an IndyCar-like series where you effectively have one common chassis and you have maybe one or two engine suppliers. And when it was clear that Honda was going to depart the sport and, and they've been producing the power units that Red Bull uses for the past three seasons, I was a little bit worried because to me, one of the things that makes Formula One so special is that you have so many different forces from the automotive industry participating and competing. And to see somebody like Honda leave without a clear replacement entering the sport was a little bit worrying. You, yeah. you obviously see today that you've got the Ferrari power unit that's powering three cars. You've got the mercedes power unit that is now powering I think almost half of the grid but it seemed really worrying to me that we were going to lose Honda and that Red Bull was ultimately going to have to move to Mercedes which was something that they've tried to do in the past or that they would have to renew that relationship with Renault which powered them to four world titles so to me it was really 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 exciting that they were able to retain that IP but I think what's even more exciting is that from an investment perspective they're going all in like hey we've bought this this Honda IP we're going to move the manufacturing capacity fully into Milton Keynes. We talked about it last week. They're building a brand new factory to to develop that power unit. But I also thought, and and I want to make sure that we don't discard this, that that Ben Hodgkinson move is, is a huge one. And there was a ton of controversy over the last week as to how this happened, right? Because for you to poach somebody like that from one of your principal rivals, and this is a guy that's been fundamental in the development of the Mercedes power unit. He's been working out of Bricksworth for oh my gosh 20 years or something 20 years yeah yeah two decades a like, long he's time he's been there for that entire Mercedes journey and before he knows everything about that power unit from the ground up because he was so instrumental in the development of it and I think one of the questions and this is one of those kind of stories that spawns a new life on Reddit but the question is how long has he been in correspondence with Red Bull uh, have they been kind of flirting with each other for a while Christian Horner did respond because the allegations became pretty heated over the past week and he said no look he he responded to our job advertisement you know what we weren't meeting with him via some clandestine coffee shop sessions late at <laughs> night in in Milton Keynes ultimately we posted the job he applied for it we went through an interview process it was totally transparent but regardless of whether it was transparent or not the the amount of intellectual knowledge and experience that he brings to that team is monumental. Now, I don't think it's going to damage Mercedes in any meaningful way. I think their people capital is still exceptional, but I think this is an added benefit to a team that's already on an upward trajectory from a power unit development perspective. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think there's going to be anything dodgy going on. Like like you say, I mean, obviously they weren't meeting in a coffee shop wearing ball caps and hoodies <laughs> and sunglasses and meeting in a dark corner or something shady. And sharing shady blueprints like under the table. Yeah, no, well, that's never happened in Formula One before. Well, not recently anyways. But <laughs> anyways, but, but but I think obviously coming from Mercedes to Red Bull, there, there's going to be an obviously non-disclosure agreements up the yin-yang. I mean, there, there, there's going to be no way that he can ultimately divulge any of the technical secrets but he can bring all these principles and guide that uh, this uh, Red Bull program in the way that he wants so I mean that that two decades of knowledge that he has working at uh, Mercedes at Bricksworth and especially over the you know more importantly in this turbo hybrid era over the past uh, several years going on almost a decade now is going to be so crucial I mean you have to think that uh, you know if you're that the HR guy or, or girl and you, you go into Christian Horner's office office and say okay well we've got some uh, some some applicants for the new technical director of the engine division you want to like go and look through some of these names and you give christian warner that list you see that name on there like oh my god this guy's applying for this job it's just like okay tell everybody else to go home and tell him okay you know you're good you're hired it's just like how much do you want but you have to know on the flip side and you know not to be uh, you know a little bit kind of like uh I don't know, maybe a little bit kind of silly about it, but you have to think that if his contract at Mercedes expires at 11.59 p.m. on December 31st, 2021, they are not going to let him go a, a second early. They're going to make him work out the terms of his contract. And that's why that in all the stories and articles out there relating to this uh, addition to Red Bull, you know, obviously they're very excited about it, but no terms of agreement have been reached as to when he can actually join it because it just says, you know, he has to fulfill the con- uh, contractual obligations that he has with the Mercedes and, and rightfully so. But uh, they're going to find, I I think, you know, every opportunity that they can to make sure that he he fulfills those uh, those obligations, even if it means uh, that uh, he's going to be, you know, the coffee guy or the photocopy guy or the sitting at home on gardening leave guy, because you have to think now that he's, you know, whatever his input is into their engine program from this day forward, you have to think that his you know, his influence is going to be scaled back pretty quick. Every everything you say is is so so true, and that that gardening leave ter- term is such a is such a Formula One centric. I know, right? right? Like, <laughs> in, in in other industries, like you would probably just cut your losses and move on. Like you know what, give we'll we'll pay you two weeks, you can move on. But in this industry, you don't want him with that rival any longer than he absolutely has to be there. So ultimately, the way this will probably play out is to your point, he's going to be making coffee or photocopies in Bricksworth, or he's going to be on gardening leave until the very last minute. And I just looked it up. At midnight, the average drive time between the Mercedes HPP facility in Bricksworth and the new uh, power unit factory in Milton Keynes is 41 minutes. So it would he'll be at (laughs) he'll be at Milton Keynes working on that Red Bull power unit at roughly 1245 a.m. the day that The day after that contract expires. I don't think he won't be, but you're right. Like, I think ultimately this just ends up in a situation where he's on gardening leave. He's going to be paid for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Um, And ultimately on that last day when he's leaving the factory, and I'm not suggesting he would do this, but just be aware that uh, security will be patting him down, looking for USB drives that might contain a very, very important schematics. But ultimately, I don't think he would need to steal any intellectual copy or intellectual property anyways, because the Red Bull power unit is already in such a great place, right? Like this is, 
isn't a rebuilding effort. This is just, yeah. hey, carry on the development journey of this power unit in the absence of the Japanese mechanics and engineers that were really leading the project before. But you know what? What a fascinating position for a, for a person to be in, that, that if you have that knowledge and skill and you've been a key uh, person in the development of arguably the, I don't think that there's even a question of a doubt, the most successful power unit in the sport for nearly a decade, to, to see that opportunity come up at a rival team. And like you say, th- this is not like a from the ground up build. This is taking a very good engine and taking it to, to the next level. You have to think that if you're, you're a person that is in that position to, you know, you, you know that you tick off all the boxes on the checklist that, uh, that Red Bull has. That is obviously one of those things that you know it, it's it's almost too good to pass up. You know that that I'd I'd love to know what the what the thought process on you know on his side was before he decided. Okay, this is something I want to do because I mean the the opportunity to be able to go from one team that's been so successful and then go to another team and be able to try and emulate and and do the same thing there. I mean. You know, I, I get excited about that, and I, I, <laughs> I'm not even that line of work, so it is uh, fascinating to see. But you know, what what also is interesting too is that that Honda is not going to be pulling completely out; they're going to be still involved, uh, you know, partially in some of the engine development uh, for Red Bull. Um, you know, they're 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 committed uh, to uh, continuing on some of this uh, development work, so it's not like they're going to uh, make a complete um, uh, break for it. So I, I think it is interesting that. They still are going to be involved, although on a very, very smaller scale. I thought that was pretty interesting. I, I, I had assumed that the, because it's not a divorce, right? Like it, it's a mutual parting of ways, and yeah. Honda is handing over the IP and a, a, a lot of the developmental materials for this power unit in a very cordial way. And the transaction's very clean and it's very friendly. And I think Honda in other circumstances probably would have continued on this journey with Red Bull. But I thought it was quite interesting that they're going to continue to be involved in some capacity for not the foreseeable future, but at least for the immediate future. I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing, but I also think that it's really important for Red Bull that they concentrate all of the power unit development into that new manufacturing facility in Milton Keynes, which is almost immediately adjacent, their core factory. And I think if there were any strains on the developmental process the past couple of years is that Honda was doing a lot of the development work in Japan, which isn't necessarily ideal when most of the Formula One teams are based out of kind of that power alley corridor of, yeah. of uh, central of central England. And, and I'd assume that one of the things that was really exciting to Red Bull was the fact that, hey, we are going to be able to concentrate the entire development. So whether it's that they're going to keep some of the more experienced Honda engineers in Milton Keynes to be a part of the process and a part of that handover, or whether they're going to continue to do some developmental work uh, from Japan remotely, that I'm not sure. But I, I was pretty surprised to see this story because I thought even though it's a nice gesture, I would have assumed that Red Bull would have been motivated to bring this internally as quickly as possible. Yeah, well, where their in, uh, their involvement is going to be is for the new fuels that are going to be coming. Mm-hmm. So this uh, this gotcha. new E10 uh, fuel. So that this is going to be uh, the, the the new fuel that's going to be coming in 2022. That's going to have a, a 10% uh, blend of advanced sustainable ethanol. 
So this is, um, you know, th- this is. I guess they've got some uh, some some expertise there. So Red Bull's really, you know, excited that they're going to be able to take advantage of this from Honda while they still have this knowledge available to them. Because I mean, let's not forget that Honda's reasoning, at least publicly, for pulling out of Formula One is that they want to convert their fleet to you know purely electric. So at some point, you know, they're ju- they're just going to say that okay, we're still going to have like uh, you know cars with internal combustion engines, but at some point they're just going to put a free on that and say, okay, as of this date, we're going to be doing no more you know, development or design on internal combustion engines. And then by this date, you know, our fleet's going to be completely electric. I mean, there's going to be obviously some crossover in there. But at some point, you know, if you're an engineer within the Honda organization, your specialty is in designing internal combustion engines. You know, to to to, to use that analogy that we uh, used just now, uh, talking um, you know about like Red Bull's uh, you know new addition of a technical di- director, you might be the photocopy guy because you know if that's your area of expertise and you're in an organization, a company that's going uh, all electric, that that knowledge is redundant. It's uh, it's it's not useful. So I think I think it's a good uh, move, and I'm I'm glad to see them staying in Formula One in some capacity for the, for the time being. And I mean, eventually you have to think that when the technology gets there one way or the other, whether, you know, Formula One embraces uh, electric uh, uh, power units or it's just pushed upon them just because everywhere else in society, there's EVs everywhere else. I mean, that that's the big question. Like I, I've sort of speculated they're just kind of kicking the can down to the road to the point where electric uh, power units are just powerful enough and reliable enough that they produce similar uh, performance characteristics that uh, that these engines have. And then they just seamlessly make a transition. That's kind of like my own thing. But who knows? Maybe at that point we see Honda come back into the sport. But, you know, I, I would predict and just to answer one of my questions a minute ago, and you just pushed me this article under the table, but it looks like that work that you spoke to, especially around the the more sustainable fuels, will continue in Honda's facility in Sakura, Japan. So they'll continue to use existing resources at their existing facility uh, and feed data and blueprints um, and schematics over to the Milton Keynes team. But I, I would just add something to that as well. And I, I I'd hoped we would kind of, kind of at some point branch into a little bit of a conversation about Formula E. And maybe one day we do a whole show on Formula E. But I think if Honda goes anywhere, it would probably probably be Formula E. And if Formula E's done anything, and Formula E, I think, is going into its seventh campaign this coming year, it's aside from losing money, and it's certainly losing less money now than it was initially, mm-hmm. but it's done a really, really great job of attracting OEMs. I, I mean, if you look today, Porsche's involved, BMW's involved, Mercedes is involved. Um, there's so many Jaguars involved. There's so many OEMs that are excited to be a part of that. And part of it's because the cost is very, very predictable. But to your earlier point that if we're going to invest in a motorsport series that reflects the vehicles that are going to be on the road in five and 10 and 15 years from now, we're not going to invest in building these ultra expensive 1.6 liter V6 hybrid monstrosities. We're going to go all in on this all EV racing series. And Mm -hmm. I would assume that Honda potentially using the Mugen banner uh, would potentially make a move into Formula E, but probably not back into Formula One. Unless to your point, ultimately the series has to go all electrification and then ultimately i guess the question is what does that spell for formula e unless there's some sort of merger but again that's a conversation for a future day but i'm confident that honda will be back but i think it'll be in an all electric racing series yeah it's fascinating anyways uh, mark let's uh, take another break here and then i want to come back to formula e because formula e is actually going to become a thing in our city possibly as early as uh, 2022 and we'll talk about that in just a moment so don't go away we'll be right back 
All right. Well, welcome back to the show that is always up to speed with Formula E. I mean, uh, Formula One. You see what I did there? <laughs> <laughs> nice, uh, not so subtle uh, segue. But it uh, it is interesting uh, that uh, the city council here in Vancouver has voted in favor of hosting a Formula E E-Prix here as early as, uh, as next year. This has kind of been talked about over the past uh, several years. I haven't really heard too much talk about it, say, in the last 18 months, certainly in the last... 12 months in the in the COVID era. But Formula E to Vancouver, to me, seems like a very Vancouver kind of uh, thing. And it will be interesting to see, even that, uh, you know, council has voted in favor of it, basically uh, opening in the, the door to welcome the series to, to, to Vancouver. I, uh, you know, I'm excited to see if it comes here. I have to admit, I don't really follow the series all that closely. But if it becomes a thing, then obviously, uh, we'll, we'll have to keep a lot closer eye on it, especially if we're going to be hosting it here literally 10 miles from where we're sitting right now. Vancouver is a, a beautiful city. I think it does a really, really good job of draw, drawing in tourism, and it does a really good job of marketing itself as an outdoor-friendly city. The mountains, the trails, camping, skiing, snowboarding, uh, climbing, all those different kind of things. But if you live in the city, there's, there's a term here that is thrown around quite a lot, which is Vancouver is the no-fun city. And the city historically <laughs> yeah. has gone out of its way to kind of push events like this beyond the city. City borders and oftentimes across the border into Seattle and into Washington State. So when I saw this, I was I was surprised. And to kind of back this up and give everyone a little bit of uh, context, Vancouver did previously host the Molson Indy Vancouver, which was I think originally part of the IndyCar series, and then it became part of the Kart series, and then it became part of the Champ Car series before ultimately it went bankrupt in 2008. So the city has some experience with a open wheel racing series on a yeah. downtown street circuit. The proposed Formula E event would be in a very, very similar geography. One of the reasons that ultimately the Molson Indy Vancouver event was pushed out of the city was because of noise complaints from the neighbors. So from a Formula E perspective, these cars are very, very, very quiet, relatively. Um, and it also kind of aligns with the city's ambition to be seen and marketed globally as a green city. And yeah, absolutely. hosting an yep. E-Prix potentially helps with that. I did get a chuckle and I sent you a, a curse-filled WhatsApp message about this <laughs> earlier, but I was reading a series of tweets about the Vancouver E-Prix earlier today. And there was some Vancouver resident that was demanding to know how much of the profits generated by this race are going to be taken and invested in making our streets more cyclist friendly. And I, I was both infuriated by that and got a good chuckle out of that because it's a very Vancouver, very Vancouver uh, comment. But <laughs> I, I think one of the things to watch is that Formula E is growing exponentially. Yep. And this was a race that was hemorrhaging money for the first couple of years. It really only took to the track in 2014. It's predominantly a street track or street circuit based series. But I think one of the things that it has going for it is the participation of so many big OEMs. And yeah. if you look at it right now, Nissan's involved, Audi's involved, Jaguar's involved, BMW's involved, Mercedes-Benz is involved. Like you have five of the big OEMs and Formula One, and I guess Nissan through its Renault partnership is kind of involved in Formula One, but Formula One would kill would kill to have those OEMs involved. And it's not going to happen because the lack of cost certainty in that sport. And that's one of the reasons why Formula One wants to introduce a cost cap because they want to make it more attractive in, in terms of enticing some of these OEMs. But at the same time, Formula E just kind of fits the bill from a marketing perspective. Like if I'm Audi and Jaguar and BMW and my, my 
principal motivation right now in terms of developing my road car fleet is to electrify the cars. It only makes sense to align with an electrified racing series, not Formula One. But I'm excited and I'm, I'm curious to see what it would look like. And it's going to happen quickly because to your earlier point, it's supposed to happen as soon as 2022. Yeah, I mean, if they're using the the similar uh, track uh, layout uh, that they had all those years ago for the Molson Indy, then I mean, it, it's pretty much uh, a fairly easy thing to do to convert it to, to a road uh, circuit. I mean, it's just uh, the, the the matter of uh, getting the the track in place and the barriers and the fencing and the pit facilities and and hopefully by this time or wh- whatever time this race uh, takes place grandstand so we can put bums in seats and get fans there and and have more of a normal uh, experience again but uh, it, it is uh, exciting and this is maybe something we're going to have to talk about uh, in detail probably this is a good off-season topic but you know you just mentioned all those big OEMs that are involved in Formula E and just how Formula One would love to have them involved and that's why I think just in general, I think Formula One is walking a very, very kind of um, tricky path. I don't want to th- think it's like sort of like a razor's edge, but certainly, right. I mean, they, they've got one eye kind of fixed on now, like the, the, the present and also the future. I mean, you, you, you so rightly mentioned the cost cap, but... Yeah, it, it is ultimately interesting to see where the both series are going to go because if they get to the point where they can race those Formula E cars on a Formula One track and they have similar kinds of uh, performance, then you know there, there's obviously like a huge concern. Like if they, if they're getting close to that, because that could really spell a lot of problems for Formula One. And there's a couple of major developments that that are happening in that series and. I think if you look at the next generation of Formula E cars, they're exponentially faster than the current generation. They're yeah. going to fast charging in the pits so they can run longer races. They can race on longer tracks. Um, they can, they can, uh, run at top speed for longer periods of time. Like the, the development of those cars is happening at an exponential rate. And to your point, yeah. what happens when we get to the point where one of these cars can put in a similar lap time on a like for like track? That's a scary place potentially for for Formula One to be. Well, you know, even if it got to say the performance uh, or lap times of, uh, say we have, um, you know, any Formula One track where you have the support races Formula Two, I think that that discussion gets very interesting if these like Formula E cars are putting in similar lap times to Formula Two cars, which are obviously several seconds a lap slower than Formula One. But if they're getting to that level of uh, performance, all of a sudden, I I think that's a, a completely new conversation. I think that if it gets to that point, I think that alarm bells would have to be going off in Formula One headquarters and all through the Formula One world. Absolutely. And yeah. don't don't think that Liberty's not watching this because oh, I'm Liberty sure they is are. also a financial backer of Formula E. So they they they've got uh, they've got money in both camps and potentially you see I think ultimately these these racing series will get closer and closer and more and more alike and then yeah. ultimately other questions will arise about the long-term sustainability of having two very similar racing series. But it's going to be it's going to be exciting to to watch. I think the one thing that I would caution is that as the series continues to grow, I think what we're ultimately going to see is that the two series are going to compete for corporate sponsorship dollars. I think that's ultimately where it's going to get really, really risky for Formula One. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd love to talk about this more, but unfortunately, you know, they were about this Liberty being involved in, in both uh, series, but I, I I can't find my tinfoil hat anywhere. So we'll, we'll have to <laughs> shelve this discussion for another time. Uh, Mark, uh, moving along, I, I want to talk to maybe, I don't know if you're, you're comfortable uh, taking this one, but 
So we know for sure now that we're going to have the sprint races uh, this year. We're, we're going to trial them at a couple of different uh, races with the, the ultimate uh, goal to have them in place for 2022. And they're going to go in the direction that, uh, that you and I have uh, hoped and talked about uh, before, that they're going to have these kind of like Grand Slam weekends where these sprint races are, are going to feature. So it's not going to be like each and every uh, race. But I've been looking at the way that they want to kind of uh, do this. And I have to admit, I, I've, I've only got a kind of like a basic uh, knowledge knowledge of how they're going to do it. I mean, it's it's a little bit kind of tricky in the way that they're, they're kind of like um, allotting tires and the number of tire sets and things like that. I mean, ultimately, when it comes down to it, um, you know, you still, when it comes to the race itself, you're still going to have to make one pit stop because you're going to have to use two different race or uh, tire compounds for the race itself. But I think it's uh, it's interesting. I'm, I'm really excited to see how this is going to play out. I would expect that the first time we see this trial this year is going to be chaotic, maybe. I, I think it's going to be difficult for everybody to kind of get their, their mind around how this works, uh, be it uh, in the car, in the pits, in the broadcast booth, or at home watching this uh, unfold on TV. So I'm excited, but I still have lots of questions because, <laughs> like I say, I, I, I haven't wrapped my mind around this yet. What I think we know is we're obviously going to see a race in Silverstone and there's a couple of other races and again I think we're expecting to see one in Canada as well and obviously that didn't play out but I, I think I'm immensely excited and I'm open to trying some things but and correct me if I'm wrong because I might get this wrong so let's frame up the race weekend what we're going to ultimately see is we are going to see a free practice one session on the Friday morning followed by qualifying for the sprint race that evening or afternoon. Correct. Saturday will start with free practice too, yes. followed by the sprint race itself. And the sprint race is going to be roughly about 100 kilometers because I think some of the criticism and some of the concern was that, hey, if you're putting these drivers through a sprint race, what does that do to the longevity of the car, the wear and tear on the mechanics, on the drivers? But ultimately, if you look at the mileage that a lot of these drivers might do in a free practice session, it's not totally different than what this race is ultimately going to account for. So in terms of total mileage, you know what? It's it's ultimately going to be the same. And again, that, that sprint race is obviously obviously going to be significantly more intense, but mm -hmm. I think it creates this action packed weekend where you now have three premium events. Cause I'll be very honest, you know, if I'm working, I might put free practice on in the background, or I might watch the highlights at night, but I'm not making time out of my day, especially on a Friday or a Saturday morning to sit down and watch free practice. And you know what? I think it's okay for a formula one fan to say, I don't watch free practice live. Very few of us do, but what mm -hmm. this ultimately does is it creates three very special moments on a race weekend, because now you have qualifying for the sprint race on Friday, which is relevant and it's always going to be relevant and it's going to be exciting, but it also creates this really, really unique event that Formula One has on a Friday night when they typically don't attract eyeballs to the TV. Then on the Saturday, in lieu of qualifying, which is typically an exciting event, you've yep. got the sprint race. And for all intents and purposes, and based on some of the projections I think that the TV networks are expecting, the sprint races are going to draw numbers that are probably going to be in the comp of double what we would see for a qualifying events. So they're expecting big numbers for the sprint race. And then ultimately you get the Grand Prix or the Grand Prix on the Sunday. So you kind of have this really stacked weekend. And this is why I'm so favor in so in favor of this concept of building in these four 
And this isn't something that Formula One's talking about, but I really like the idea of kind of building in four of these race weekends over the course of a season that you mm-hmm. have these four premium event majors weekends. Like, hey, you know what? The British Grand Prix, that's a major. And you know what? This other event is a major, and this is a major, and this is a major, because you can build and package and market these weekends as something very, very special. And then ultimately, potentially, that can transcend the sport. Because I think when you look at tennis, there's a lot of tennis fans out there, but they may only tune in for the US Open, or they might only tune in for the French Open. They might only tune in for the majors. And likewise with golf, there's a lot of golf fans, but they only tune in for those major events like um, the Masters or the US Open or the British Open. But if you can build these four core events and you can build a calendar around them and you can promote them in a way that transcends your typical Formula One fan, that's a very, very, very cool thing. And that's what I'm excited about seeing what they do with this long term. But yeah, again, we're going to see a couple of these this year. I think it's three. I'm super, super pumped. And I think you're right. I think the first weekend is going to be a little bit chaotic because I think the question is, if I'm a driver, how how hard do I race on Saturday? Like ultimately that is a race and I'm going to be going head to head with cars twice on that race weekend. So I'm very curious to see how seriously drivers take that Saturday. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's interesting because... Obviously, with this very ambitious schedule that we have this year, and you know, with twenty-three races, and they've they've said quite bluntly that they want to get up and push even twenty-five. That just it would it it seems that just logistically you would be pushing things. I, I think just with having twenty-three, twenty-five races, they're pushing things to the max as it is. But I like the idea of having these weekends uh, that, uh, like you say, the, the, these major events. And I think that if you're going to introduce them, I think it's the, the ideal way to do it. Do it at certain uh, events, pump it up, make it a special thing. And it's, it's sure it's going to be a little bit more pressure on resources, but only at select weekends out of the year. So you know it's going to be in Britain, it's going to be in Italy, it's going to be in Singapore or, exactly. or wherever it might be. And my my whole uh, take is, and this sort of just popped into my mind when you said, okay, well, uh, you know, there's a uh, what was this going to how or how this is this going to affect the longevity of the car? But they might be running similar distances in fra- practice anyway. So the 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 thing that sort of um, popped into my mind immediately is, well, if you're going to be running these uh, t- types of distances and track time. Why not do it in a meaningful way? And I think right. that uh, doing the or having these sprint races and the qualifying for the sprint races, I think that just uh, like you say, it, it adds a special element to it. It's going to attract people to it, and especially at the time when typically people aren't. And I'll be quite upfront and honest: I don't watch any free practice highlights. It just. Uh, you know, it, it it just doesn't really excite me. I, I get very interested, obviously, for qualifying because it means something. You know, it, it's interesting to see how that, uh, you know, what happens in Q1, obviously what happens in Q3 and obviously or in Q2 and then obviously in the top 10 shootout in Q3 because there's something at stake. And to see FP1 and FP2 when they're still trying to set up the car. Yeah, that's kind of cool, but you know, you're not going to have Lewis racing out with Max Verstappen head, you know, head to head, right? So Th- that's such a funny point, and I've never thought about that. It's not like ESPN packages up the pregame NBA shoot around. It's not yeah. like it's not like Sportnet Sportsnet is packaging up the Toronto Blue Jays pregame batty batty practice as a highlights package. But but we 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 are conditioned to think of that as important. I think ultimately the reason why Liberty is excited about this concept is ultimately they can now go to race organizers and say, hey, 
you can host a race weekend for $20 million. Or if you want to host a major, it's $40 million. Mm -hmm. Or they can also now go to their television partners and say, hey, we've got this new enticing product that is going to deliver more content and more value to you and your commercial rights holders. This is what we want for it. So ultimately, it's about Liberty creating value for for their television network sponsors. It's in terms of creating value in terms of increasing hosting fees, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But again, this year is a trial, right? There's no guarantee we're going to see it next year. And you make a great point that when we eventually get to that 25 race calendar, that in itself is going to be a grind. Integrating this into a 25 race calendar could be even greater, but I'm excited to see. And, and I'm just, I'm happy that Formula One is trying things that aren't the reverse grid. Yeah, absolutely. The reverse grid and also that knockoff. Um, From 2016, the, the knockout 20, qualifying. Yeah, that just uh, did not work. It lasted two races or three races or whatever, and then they canned it pretty quickly. But hey, Mark, I want to take one final break. And when we come back, uh, we, we should just quickly uh, preview the race uh, before we go over and, or uh, before we run out of time tonight. And we'll do so in just a moment uh, when we uh, come back on the show. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And Mark, we still there. There's so many uh, other interesting stories to, to talk about, but I want to take the last uh, 10, 15 minutes or so, so that we have uh, left on the program just to quickly uh, talk about the, the the race ahead of Portimao for the Portuguese uh, Grand Prix. As we talked about it off the top of the show, second time that we're going there, second uh, COVID era race at uh, Portimao. I really enjoyed it uh, last year. The race result, uh, we'll go down the top 10, was Lewis Hamilton winning, Valtteri Bottas second, Max Verstappen rounding out the podium in what has been a very familiar looking podium over the past couple of years. Then we had uh, Charles Leclerc, Pierre Gasly, Carlos Sainz, who was then racing for McLaren, Sergio Perez in the racing point, Esteban Ocon and Danny Ricardo in the two Renaults, and then Sebastian uh, Vettel rounding out the top 10. It was interesting. Lewis actually lapped everybody up to Charles Leclerc uh, before he won that uh, race. And uh, well, it was a good one. I, I, I enjoyed the track. It was it was new. It was fresh. It was different. Like I said, off the beginning of the track, or sorry, the beginning of the show, maybe it's a track that's not 100% suited to, to these cars, just uh, in terms of uh, performance and the twisty, undulating nature of the track, to use your own word against you. But uh, I, I, thought it, I thought it worked. I thought it was a very good race. And I'm looking forward to it now, uh, even more so than last year, because it's not an unknown quantity. These guys have been there. They, they know what this uh, track is about. So I, I'm hoping that it's going to be a better race. Uh, race in terms of what we see on the track this year, considering that it's only been six months that we've been there and we're basically going back with the identical cars as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the race that we saw there last season was October 25th. It was, the weather wasn't terrible, but it was very, very cool. The, and the weather dropped too. into the low single digits overnight. I, I'm looking at the forecast right now. It, it's going to be a little bit cloudy this weekend, but it's going to be in the low 20s. Uh, so the track temperatures are probably in the high 20s or low 30s. So yeah. it should be stickier. Obviously, with the aero regulation changes, the offseason, the cars, with the exception of the Williams, are running a little bit slower. But I would expect, especially to your point, now that the drivers have a little bit more familiar familiarity with this track and the engineers and the mechanics are probably better equipped to set up the car for this track. I would expect to see some fairly comparable lap times, probably not at parity with last year, but some pretty good, uh, some pretty good lap times. That said, again, to your point, the track was really built in, 
in the vein of Formula One cars of yesteryear, Formula One cars of 20 or 25 years ago, in yeah. terms of that much smaller, more compact package, these Formula One cars are huge. And I was talking to my buddy Randy about this the other day. They're obnoxiously big in, in a lot of ways, which is one of the reasons why it's it's so difficult to overtake on some of these older tracks. But this is a beautiful track. It's freshly resurfaced. I'm excited to see what happens this weekend. I don't necessarily have any predictions, but I think qualifying is going to be incredibly, incredibly important. Important. And if somebody qualifies well, say a Max Verstappen, and they get a great start, I think it's going to be very, very difficult for anyone else to uh, take a race win here unless something crazy happens. Yeah, absolutely. And just to, to go back, like you say, the weather is going to be uh, pretty good. It's going to be low 20 Celsius. That's going to be about 70 Fahrenheit. Um, yeah, I, I think it's going to be interesting uh, to, to, to see. I mean, if you go and look at it too, um, I, I just pulled it up, the stats here. So this track opened in, in 2008. And uh, obviously, we saw the first Formula One. Uh, Grand Prix there last year. And uh, just to pull up uh, some of the stats about uh, the, the track itself. So the race distance is uh, 306.8 kilometers, 66 laps. The the, the circuit length is uh, 4.65 kilometers. And the lap record, which was uh, set by Lewis Hamilton uh, last uh, year, is a 118.750. So it's going to be interesting to see how the uh, the, the lap times shake out uh, th- this weekend compared to last year. If we come close to that, if we exceed it, because one thing that we haven't seen so far this year is that we've seen kind of been a phenomenon over the past couple of years is like new lap records and new you know new track record and all these t- times really tumble down so it'll be really interesting to see uh, how it uh, shakes out uh, the, the the this weekend ahead and um, yeah it's it's going to be really interesting to see what uh, what happens uh, I would like to see again I, I want to see Red Bull really take this one to uh, Mercedes. I think it would really be fascinating just in terms of the narrative uh, for, for this season. If we could say Max Verstappen win this race and uh, say say it's uh, Max, Lewis, and Perez or Bottas or whoever uh, on the podium, but I think it would just do wonders in terms of the narrative and the, the, the whole storyline for the championship uh, this year if Max could beat Lewis and then maybe take a small lead in the championship. And if they're kind of trading punches and race wins all season long it would just be a really great story i mean it's been exciting the past of the first two seasons or sorry two first two races of the season and i want to see this perpetuated as long as possible because i i guess it would be one thing if Max kind of opens up a lead in the championship and kind of puts some some space between himself and Lewis. Uh, that that would be one thing because it would be somebody different than Lewis, somebody different than Mercedes leading the championship. And then I think there would be groans on the other side if Lewis opens up a gap in the championship. Is like ah oh, well you know it was good the first couple of races of the season, but we're back to the usual Mercedes uh, dominance. So I for one, and I know I'm not alone in wanting to see this battle between Max and Lewis extended as long as possible i want to see it go all right down to the end of the year but you know we'll we'll have to see how it shakes out by the time we sit down to wrap up the season in december and to be totally clear this is exactly what liberty is counting on from a financial perspective if yep. if mercedes were to run off four or five straight race wins and they were start to start building a significant race or championship lead by the time we get to Baku, I promise you that TV ratings would collapse. 
they would absolutely collapse. But if the championship is close, or if Max is starting to edge out a lead by the time we get to Baku, I would expect to see hugely, hugely favorable TV number comps going into the back half of the season. But the last thing that Liberty wants, the last thing that the TV networks want, the last thing that anybody wants at this point is a dominating Mercedes championship run. We we want to see some parity, and we want to see a fight that goes right down to the last race of the season, because that's good for the sport, and it stimulates interest, and it's great for the TV networks, and it excites the sponsors. And and it's what the sport needs coming after this seven-year run of Mercedes dominance and after the COVID season. That's what the sport wants, and I think that's what we all ultimately deserve at this point. Yeah, you know, I, I have nothing against Mercedes, and I've said it for years on this program, but uh, you know, I'd love to see somebody else win or another constructor win. But I mean, at the end of the day, if they're fighting back and forth all season long and Lewis wins or Mercedes wins another championship, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, it's fairly, I mean, they've always fairly contested and fairly won the championship. It's just that they haven't had uh, somebody really pushing them very close, very consistently over the course of an entire season. And what's different this year is that Red Bull's been there through the first couple of races of the season. And that's been the big, their their big advantage in this, uh, this turbo hybrid era is that they've typically gone out and really built up this unassailable lead in in both championships that by the time that Ferrari got their car dialed in or Red Bull got their car dialed in, they were already at dots down the road that unless something disastrous happened to their season and they hit some unprecedented form of bad luck and race retirements or whatever the, the 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 case may be that it was just an almost impossible situation for Red Bull Ferrari whoever to try and close that gap and we're not seeing that this year so far and like you say this is the ideal situation for for everyone except for maybe Mercedes <laughs> who, who want to uh, to kind of uh, extend that run of dominance but for everybody else i mean it, it's it's exciting it gets people really pumped up about it and especially at this point where you have all these new fans coming into formula 1 all hyped up after watching uh, drive to survive or coming in for from whatever you know method is i mean predominantly dts and i think that for, for these new people coming in and really getting a taste of a, a Formula One season in real time rather than seeing the condensed uh, version that you get in Drive to Survive, this is exciting because this is happening right now. And to see the drama unfolding is, you know, that that's what it's all about. We all want to see it go down to the wire. And like I say, ultimately, if Lewis wins the championship, I've got no, no problem with that. But uh, I would like to see somebody else win it just for variety's sake. Let's put it that way. Absolutely. And I I think you and I have talked about this in the past. One of the things that made 2016 so exciting was even though it was two Mercedes drivers, it literally came down to the final race of the season. Like you were hooked for that entire season. Every single race was much watched because (laughs) you knew ultimately that if Hamilton made an error or if he DNF, the championship was over or that if Nico made an error, then Hamilton was right back in it. But ultimately it came down to that final race of the season. And I think Liberty would absolutely do anything for that as an outcome. One thing that I did want to add before before we signed off. And I think we would be doing a disservice to uh, especially our American fans. We didn't mention this, but last week we were talking about up and coming uh, open wheel racing star Colton Herta yep. in the US, who is currently racing in the NTT IndyCar series. He won last weekend in St. Petersburg. So just to reinforce that point that there's some very talented young American open wheel drivers that have had some European experience. Uh, he kind of put a resounding exclamation mark on that story that I think was really initiated or initiated by some 
some comments that uh, Mario Andretti had made, but he's uh, he's out there. And I think whether it's him or somebody else, one of the things that Formula One absolutely needs to continue to make inroads in the United States is an American driver that they can market to American fans. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially now that we've got Miami coming next year, we've had the the U.S. Grand Prix. I mean, there's still talks that they'd like to get a third race in the U.S. at some point. I mean, obviously, we have the, the, the Canadian Grand Prix and the Mexican Grand Prix. I mean, they do have to establish a bigger foothold in North America as a, as a whole. I mean, obviously, you've got Sergio Perez, who's a Mexican driver, and, you know, he gets a, obviously and deservedly so a big reception every time Formula One is in Mexico City. I mean, can you imagine that uh, the, the, the reception that... Uh, an American driver is going to get at the U.S. Grand Prix or, or any race in the U.S. And I mean, uh, and, and that's the thing that sucks too, because there's no Canadian Grand Prix this year. There wasn't one last year. And we got two Canadian guys in the series right now. And Lance has been steadily getting a better and better car as his talent gets better. I mean, he's had a couple of podium finishes. He's a local boy in, in Montreal. And you just know that when, you know, the, the hometown boy comes to race at home that everybody's going to be behind him. And I, I, I still just think that, you know, American fans are just like waiting for that moment to really to latch on to somebody. I think that that there are, that there's always going to be popular drivers within the, uh, you know, within the United States and within uh, North America. But I think it would go to a different level if it's it's an American driver in Formula One. And more importantly, he's with a competitive team you know challenging for race wins that he's in the you know the, the the title conversation i think we'd see the sport go to a whole new level of popularity in the united states absolutely 100% and on that that's all i've got and i i think we've we've topped out at another hour and 30 minutes which seems to be the norm about uh, the, the, these days so unless you've got anything else my friend i i don't think that we're we're going to subject uh, our our listeners and viewers to to any more of mark and mark for uh, you know at least a couple of days no, you're smiling. You, you're not even responding to me. So <laughs> you, don't, you don't defer to me at this point for fear that I'm going to break into MotoGP corner. Like, let's sign off as quick as we can as you, mic- as you mute my microphone. There we but, go. Uh, but there were actually a couple of other interesting stories that we could have talked on this week. We could have talked about the fact that Patty Lode made some comments about the fact that the Williams family should have sold that team on early. There's, yeah. there's so many other things, you know, uh, and, and you just touched on it. Nicholas Latifi had uh, kind of released a statement speaking to how sad he was that there wasn't going to be a Canadian Grand Prix, that it's the right thing. But simultaneously, the Canadian Grand Prix race organizers have signed an extension for an additional two years in lieu of the two races they lost. There's so much that we could talk about, but at some point we just have to, we have have to shut it down yeah it's as 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 much as we know everybody really wants three hours a week of us and i I say that with somewhat uh, tongue planted firmly in cheek but uh, we'll call it a night uh, right there so uh, again thank you all for downloading listening to the show or tuning in on uh, youtube thank you for your emails Uh, shout out to to matt uh, carlos hernandez and bj crabtree who got in touch via the email thanks for the tweets as well i'll be honest i'm a little bit uh, behind in going through the twitters this week so however you guys got in touch we read uh, each and every message each and every tweet so uh please keep them uh, coming and uh that's it that's all we got for now we'll be back on sunday night with our race recap and until then enjoy your weekend enjoy the P- portuguese grand prix and we'll talk to you again in a couple of days bye for now <laughs>